you know, a lot of what we do in life is chase squirrels. I say that quite literally for the church staff this week. I'm not going to inspire confidence in the ceiling above you. But, you know, sometimes there's little pitter-patters. And this week, over here in the kitchen, one came down. And it was a squirrel. And so we got long sticks and we started trying to chase it out of the church, you know. And the little thing, I mean, it went down and we had the door open right there to go outside. And it didn't go. It went down the hallway to the cry room in the back. And we chased it out of the cry room and around. And just like this comedy of the staff with sticks, because we didn't want to get the, too close to us. I mean, <laughs> those are big, scary animals. <laughs> A lot of our life, we chase squirrels. That's That's what we do. We've just finished in our church a study of the book of Jonah, and it was a neat and amazing thing for my own heart to walk through and see it's not a squirrel. It's a big deal. The absolute wonder of the mercy of God. Incredible. And the main mercy, though, that you and I know is that he, God, became a man, Jesus, to take our place and to die for us on the cross. And what an incredible mercy, an amazing thing that God became one of us. It's the defining truth of our life, you know. We call it the gospel, the good news that Jesus came. We confess it as true and we read the Bible and we live in light of this amazing truth. And often, often though, often what that morphs to in our minds is, well, because of Jesus, how should I live? That becomes kind of the main thing. It's so important, but how should we parent? How should we work? How should we live these lives we've been given by God? And so then I see the cross as a means, as a lever, a means of improved life. I think it's so important to my heart, and yet honestly, if I look at it clearly, and if you look at it clearly with me, it's something of a squirrel. So my purpose today is that you would see, you and I, as we begin this amazing journey through Mark, this, what we need is not leverage to get better, so kind of leveraging Jesus for a better life. is What we need is to trust in Jesus himself. We have a Savior. He is the Son of God. And with this in mind, we pick up this Gospel of Mark. You know, it's the only Gospel as a church we've never been through. Go back and find all in our church that we've been through the other three Gospels. This is the one we we haven't been through. And I think it's going to be good for us. More than the other accounts, this account pushes you and me. He puts it in your face. He's relentless to put in your face Jesus. You need to see him. You know, Mark's account, it's just, just about half, a little over half the length of Luke's account which is the longest, and Matthew's, which is sort of the second longest. Mark's account reads in some sense almost, if I don't know if you ever read one of these, a graphic novel. Like, kapow, kaboom, the next thing happens. He uses the word immediately a lot, 42 times or something like that. Immediately Jesus does this, and then immediately there's Jesus over there. And you never get away from the Savior at work. We're going to be able to see that this week and the weeks to come. It's relentless. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So for the next several months, you and I will devote our short time on Sundays to encountering Jesus, God become man. It's my hope this will make you and I stop 
Not to see him as a lever to improve ourselves, but to see in his actions, in his words, the Son of God who has come to serve you. It's amazing. It's why we worship. Our hearts might be struck forever with the action of God on us. It's the story of our life. It is not a squirrel. God come for us. So the gospel according to Mark is what we get to dive into. We're going to look at the first half of chapter 1 today. So if you have your Bibles and want to go there, that's what we're doing is we're looking at Mark and how he begins this gospel. He begins it this way in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. One commentator noted, as as we begin this, that this is the only time in the entire book of Mark that, that Mark actually has an opinion. He writes something about what he thinks. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The start of the good news of Jesus. The start of Jesus, Messiah. The start of Jesus, Son of God. Why just the start? Just this account. Well, we'll come back to that in other weeks. But obviously he's starting his letter. But there might be a little more there. I mean, this word starts the whole book of Genesis. This book is going backwards from Mark's own experience as we get to see today. I want to consider with you for a minute, and I want you to at least have a little bit of a flavor as we know Mark wrote this, is why Mark? Who is this guy? Why is he interesting? Why is he, why does he get to write this account? I mean, I know Matthew, he was one of the twelve. So was John, the disciple Jesus loved. Even Luke, at least he's a doctor. And then there's Mark. Who is this guy? Why? Why? And how can he call this good news? The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. So so imagine with me for a minute, will you? Because this is a book that, like I said, it's a little cut scene. So imagine with me that you're a young man in Jerusalem. And you've heard of this guy named Jesus, but you've never really followed him or met him. You're always kind of underfoot. You're you're not really um, a part of things. You, you hear about the buzz, you know, and your mom rents out rooms and... We think maybe she even rented out the room that gave the room that Jesus met in that night that he was betrayed. You're underfoot. You know this teacher's in town, and John Mark was like that. His hearing of the Jesus around Galilee, hearing of Jesus in Jerusalem. And, and, and this evening, though, we see him. The only time you see him in the Gospels. Most people think it's right here. It's in Mark 14. Take a look with me for a minute or just follow along with the story because here's the thing. Jesus has established communion, the Lord's Supper. He's shared the table with his disciples. He's gone out and now this is where Mark, I believe, personally encounters Jesus when Jesus is betrayed. Because it says that Judas, this is where it picks up in verse 45 of Mark 14, says when when. Judas came, he went up to Jesus at once, he said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Remember that scene? 
It's the scene of when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lets himself be taken by by by, by men, and he's going to go to the cross, and and then that, that amazing dark night, and and everybody flees, and and it says this, and Jesus said to them, "Have you come out uh, to, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching. You didn't seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled." And they all left him and fled. This is Mark's introduction to Jesus. Everybody left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. (laughs) That's his claim to fame. Mark was following Jesus at that point. This is the one. People agree. This is most likely Mark. He's put himself. This is the only place in any of the Gospels that you see this. Why would he say this about a young man? People are like, it's him. He was a young man. And he was following Jesus, wrapped up in linen cloth. And, and then he left it there in the hands of the guys. And he's running away. He's the guy you see his bottom as he runs away. Everyone ran, but I was the naked one. <laughs> Mark's claim to fame was that and and that his mother hosted the disciples. His mom hosted the early church. So not only did he see Jesus betrayed, he was there when he was crucified. He was really close to Peter. He he knew those things, right? But but he's there as a young man, kind of a little bit on the outside and and and, and not not a major role player in the the, the story and he got to see things. Really, if, if I was going to have Mark write something myself, I'd say, well, he would write something like Acts because he was very close to Peter, we think. He got to see some amazing things about Peter. Flip with me for a minute. It's about who Mark was in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12 is an amazing chapter where Peter's in prison, right? And an angel delivers him from prison. Really amazing. It says this, when Herod was about to bring him out, that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. The chains fell off his hands. The angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals, and he did so. He said, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He didn't know what was being done by the angel was real. He thought he was seeing a vision, Peter did. And they passed the first and the second guard. They came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. They went out and went on one street. Immediately the angel left him. Peter came to himself. I'm sure the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, from all the Jewish people were expecting. And he realized this. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Second claim to fame. My mom, she hosts the disciples. It's not even like you went to John Mark's house where John was there leading people in prayer. No, mom was, mom was there. But, but he knew Peter. He, he interacted with Peter. He hung out with Peter and he got Peter's stories. At least we think that's what we have in Mark is a lot of things from Peter. Uh, but you have Peter and his, Mark's probably there seeing Peter. That's cool.
That's why most people think the Mark is Peter's account, because Mark spent time with Peter, and some of the details seem to be from Peter's perspective. And, and, and he's Mark. He's not a, an apostle. He's not a theologian. He's a naked young man running away. He's not a likely writer, especially not of this gospel, which is thought to be a gospel to the Gentiles. So what does that mean, Dax? Why is this a gospel to the Gentiles that we're going to be spending time in? Because this gospel doesn't start with anything like a genealogy, right? Not like, well, you know, you trace the line of the lineage of the Hebrew. No. There's there's no, like, pieces here that are the things you would do. The, the time that's given in Mark 6 and Mark 13 is Roman time. The terms that are given, if they're difficult terms that a Gentile reader might not know, are explained. The palace in in, in Mark 15, or Golgotha, place of the skull, says Mark If you came today and you hadn't really, you're not really a reader, you might not have known any of that about Mark. You probably just know one thing about Mark. And it's the last thing I want to just make sure you know. His really, he's really famous for is trouble with Paul. Right? You realize that? Remember in the, in the Acts 15 when the, Paul says to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the Lord and see how they are. Paul's talking about his second missionary journey, this great apostle to the Gentiles, the one who is the guy Jesus has chosen to take the message to the Gentiles. And Paul's going for his second trip through. But something happened on his first trip through. He took a guy named Mark. And Mark went Right? That's what he even says. Barnabas wanted to take with him. John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with him one who'd withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and hadn't gone with them to the work. There arose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. See, so Mark is the cause of Paul and Barnabas splitting. Why was he the cause? Because he abandoned the work. Good resume builder. For the gospel writing. Not. Right? He, he, he went away. He, he didn't do it. He failed. And, and, and he's the naked guy. And he, he's the guy that says you don't even know. And says, why is he writing the gospel account that we're going to spend time in? I think this is why. It's fantastic. Mark isn't defined by failure. God used him incredibly in spite of it. He was with Peter. He was the one always underfoot. He wanted to be a missionary with Paul, but he went back home. And and what he was used for is this account of Jesus. Even, of course, you know, by the end of Paul's life, he says and affirms Mark. Because at the end, we think Second Timothy is one of Paul's last letters. He, said, he writes, Luke is alone with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Story's never over, right? While you're breathing, the story's never over. You don't know what the Lord's going to do. And, and Mark, what he did was he used Mark to pen this amazing account of Jesus. And here's what Mark came to believe. Mark who ran away without a stitch of clothing. Mark who didn't complete the missionary task that he started on. Mark came to believe with all his heart that Jesus Christ is Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. 
That is what the good news is to Mark. When he says this is the beginning of the good news, it's that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That's what Christ means. The Son of God. Kind of to say that different. If you say Son of God, you should say Son of God. Because it's like that. It's so amazing. It's so deep. It's so incredible. We'll have to take that in and see why this is the good news. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here it is, says Mark. We're starting. So, you gotta see as we go, then we're gonna just take a couple pieces here to look at and see why, why this is amazing and different than some of the other gospels. Because right away you see the preparation for Jesus coming. The preparation of the good news. It's going to be an action-packed tour, as we see right away. Again, no genealogy, no birth story, no deep dive into the prophets and the depth of the Old Testament. That That's not Mark. Just a quick, simple understanding of how this fits from the Old Testament. And, and, and you know, and you know, sometimes I think we want too much data. We're in this world where the data is mountainous. There's huge piles of data, and we start to mind a squirrel. Squirrels. Don't miss Mark. This is what you need to know, he says. It starts with John the Baptist, foretold in Isaiah. As it is written, verse 2, in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Okay, get ready, he says. Make the way of the Lord straight. Now, already there's a problem if you're a student of the Bible and you look at this and it's how they think, right? As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, and then he quotes the first line from, anyone know? Malachi. (laughs) What? Yeah, that's Malachi 3.1. Mark, you're wrong. No, he's pulling them together. He's pulling together. This is what he knows. This is all you're going to get from Mark. You're not going to get this lengthy exposition of the Old Testament. You're going to get this is the preparation of the Son of God coming to earth. This is what's prepared the way. It's the prophets have. And here's Isaiah, oh, that mighty prophet. And he pulls in a little bit of Malachi and then thrusts you into, into Isaiah chapter 40. Get ready. The messenger is going to come first, but boy, the way is coming. Make his path straight. Here comes the big deal. And don't get caught with the references. Think about what Mark is saying. There was somebody that came first to make the path straight. What is that thing? What makes it clear what's coming? That's what you want to know. Here it is. John appeared. Baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. That's kind of interesting. And then all the country of Judea, it says, all Jerusalem are going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Hey, this is very important. This is what the Old Testament is about, right? Not not only a coming Messiah, that's the good news, but the preparation, that's seeing the failures. If you got half a brain and you read the Old Testament, it's a story of failure over and over and over by the people of the world, by Israel herself, by people. They fail. That's what they do. And here you have this preparation. And what's the preparation? Just seeing that you're a sinner. 
The coming Messiah is the good news. The preparation is this message that goes out. Sinner. And people were coming, it says, repenting of their sin. People were getting baptized, a fresh start. It's really interesting, really interesting to me. And you've got to watch out because sometimes you even think of our baptism this way. This is not Christian baptism. Very important for you. It's not, oh, man, I think I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to, for, I'm going to confess that I'm a sinner and I'm going to be forgiven of my sin. And that's what baptism is. No, you're missing the good news. That's John's baptism. People out repenting of their sin, people getting baptized, and, and, and that's not Christian. That's like being baptized because we're sinners and we hope to do better. That's getting ready for the really good news. This sets the stage. This opens your eyes to reality. This only gets you part way, but ready to receive the really amazing gift of Jesus. The good news is to realize there's no good news in you. <laughs> the best of the Old Testament prophets, that's John. There he is. He's an interesting character. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes who he was mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I mean, John the Baptist is strange, but that not that just what Israel was supposed to be? They were supposed to look different. You know, they had to wear different clothes. They were supposed to eat different. They couldn't have a list of stuff they couldn't eat. And so here's John the Baptist, the very picture of set-apartness, wearing funny camel hair and eating locusts and honey. And this whole message is that someone is coming, like the beat of a drum. Boom. 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 See, sinners, you sin. Come get wet. See, as I proclaim, the whole Old Testament does this. Fallen man has no hope, but a Savior comes. And then, boom, he's actually here. That's it. Jesus is here. In those days, Jesus came. Verse 9 is the introduction of Jesus. He came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So into this preparatory baptism for repentance, for saying that they're sinners, comes Jesus. And we know what a trouble this is from other accounts, because in other accounts, John the Baptist says, I'm not baptizing you, Jesus. And and But that's not even a second of that here. Into this comes Jesus. He comes into this baptism for the repentance of sin that he doesn't have. And, and, and then what you're supposed to see isn't the argument over that. You're supposed to see that the heavens tear open. That the Holy Spirit, you can see him fluttering like a dove down on Jesus. And you hear this voice. This is my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is divine intervention. Oh, it's been hundreds of years since God has been heard from. 
It's called the intertestamental period. We think there wasn't much going on in terms of prophecy or anything. It's just hundreds of years of quiet. And now all of a sudden, God speaks. What does he say? Jesus, I like him. And and what I want to do is break it apart academically. I want to consider and cross-reference. But if you do, you miss the flow. It's the boom of the drum. The sun is here. The voice says, my beloved son, I'm well pleased. And you go, yeah. Oh. Okay, now I have all these ideas of what well pleased looks like. Like what's going to happen next. It's going to be really cool. And so then the next thing Mark says is the spirit immediately, the spirit that came down from heaven immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and, and, and the angels were ministering to him. What? John, you skipped a bunch of stuff. I mean, sorry, Mark, John, Mark, you skipped a bunch of stuff. You're supposed to add in these other things. So, so the, the 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 God being pleased with Jesus immediately takes him out into the wilderness. Don't let anyone ever think that your circumstances are any indication of God's pleasure. Here, Jesus, I'm really happy with you. Go, don't eat, and be tempted by Satan for a while. It doesn't sound like God pleased. It sounds like God angry. But it's not, right? It's the plan. God's plan immediately is to have Jesus tempted. And, and, and this cut scene is the second cut scene. The first cut scene is the arrival of Jesus. Boom, you get the baptism. The heavens tear open and the voice comes down. Cut scene number two, boom. Jesus in the desert. He, he's, he's, he's being tempted by Satan. And you got this funny line. Why did he even say that? He was with the wild animals. I got this feeling like, you know, wild coyote in Jesus. I don't have the flavor. There's, it's not here. You know, that the three things where, where the devil's saying, hey, make bread. And or the Jesus say, takes him to the tall tower and looks out and say, all these kingdoms can be yours or any of those. It doesn't matter for, to Mark. Don't care. I want you to see something. The miraculous plan of God is in play. The Savior has come. Jesus is being prepared in, in, in experiences in, in ways that actually you're not. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come. Your heroes arrived. God's plan is in motion. Here he comes. The miracle is here. So the plan is in play. The Spirit is in charge. And, and finally, just this last line in the introduction, and the introduction ends, actually, verse 15. It should say, now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and, and saying this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Wait, 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 back up. John was arrested? Tell me more. Why? What's happening? Nope, don't care. Cut scene three. Okay, now John's arrested. Now look. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news, the gospel, 
of God. We don't care about John the Baptist. He was just a preparer, right? That's what verse 7 says. He said himself, After me comes someone who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. So that one's here now. And he speaks and says, Hey, look, I'm telling you, the gospel of God, the good news of God, that's what Jesus is speaking. So what's the good news? Okay, now immediately again, this is what I want to do. So I do too much of this. We do too much of this. We don't, we're not Bible students. We're cross-referenced. So I'm going to go over here and try to talk about 1 Corinthians 15 and pull in over here from Colossians 1 and, and go over here to 1 Corinthians 1.30 and go try and pull it all together for you. Nope. Stay with me. Mark's okay. Mark's got it dialed. He actually quotes Jesus. Jesus says what that good news is. Do you see it there? It's not coming on the screen. You gotta look in your Bible or listen to me. Cause he says it. He says it. The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The waiting. The waiting since those kingdoms of Israel and Judah fell, right? No, 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 no. Before that, go back more. Since the kingdoms split. No, 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 no. Go before. Since the land was even given this place where God would rule. No, no, no. Go earlier. Since the nation was made and the promise that God would be their God. No, 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 no. Back further. The flood. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be the God who kills anymore like that. Go to the garden. The promise of a coming savior, a seed. Eve, the waiting is over. Abraham, oh, you're promised that a descendant who would be the, the king would rule many. The waiting is over. Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, the, 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 the waiting is over. Moses, the waiting is over. Joshua, the waiting is over. David and Solomon, David, oh, forever king, will, will, the waiting is over. Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Hosea and Jonah, the waiting is over. The time is fulfilled. Jesus is here. This is the good news. And the kingdom of God is at hand. God's kingdom is at hand. That's because the king has arrived. There's a task he proclaims to you and me. He says, hey, I'm here. The kingdom is near. It's at hand because I have arrived, says God. Says Jesus. And, and then he says this. There's a task, right? To the hearer. Repent and believe in the gospel. Oh, I just, what's the gospel? The good news that, that this is, this is all you need is done in your king. How oh, we truncate this. I'll say over and over, I've heard people, what you need to do is repent and believe. They, they, they leave the gospel out of the whole picture. Like, repent and believe uh, somehow means Stop being bad and be good. Repent and believe means stop being disobedient and be obedient. No, it doesn't. It's 
something specific. It's more radical than that. Repent means stop going the wrong way and not believing in the good news of Jesus as your only hope. And believe. The fullness of the promise, the fullness of time has come. That Jesus is the Son of God. That's the good news. Jesus is, not you. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is Mark, you guys. This is what we get to see in Mark. Mark is relentless. Mark is relentless to put before you Jesus Christ and him alone. He wants you to see, and he doesn't care if it's a cut scene in a graphic novel. He wants you to see Jesus He wants you to see it's not me. He wants you to see the actions of the Son of God that is your Savior. The one that says, oh, I am. The one who will proclaim it is finished. The one who will be the servant of all. The one who is your and my Savior. Oh, that we might see him. Jesus is the gospel. We we aren't. Our repentance is one of turning from self and trusting in Jesus, turning from our own rational ideas of climbing to God and instead receiving the good news of Jesus Christ alone. Your sinfulness is only the ground to receive him, not what needs to change to go get him. He is the action hero. He is the savior. He is God himself and he came. Don't you want to see what he did? Don't you want to hear what he said? Because this is your story. Because we are now saved by him. You and I are his people. We're part of his kingdom by trusting him alone. And this is the relentlessness of Mark. To look at Jesus and live. I can't wait to see all of these cutscenes, all of these action moments, all of these statements that my Savior said while he was on earth and that Mark was able by the Holy Spirit to write down for us that you and I might rejoice in what Jesus has done for us. Oh, it's much. He is our Savior. Will you pray with me?